The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Notwithstanding a lot of, well, a lot of mayhem downtown, the reality is is that the business of government, the business of Washington, the business of managing the country continues apace. And there are things going on that are impactful to business people and citizens that I wanted to talk about today in this What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm here in the studio with Richard Levick, founder of Levick and an international expert on corporate communication. Richard, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, John. Barry Bennett is here also, founder of Avenue Strategies and a well-respected Republican strategist. Barry, good to see you. Thank you. And Manny Ortiz, founder of Vantage Night and a leading Democratic advisor. Manny, good to see you. Thank you. Well, gents, uh, I was really uh, interested in when Richard suggested the three of you as, as a panel for this episode because I'll tell you, I've been very frustrated. Uh, Washington's going on downtown. I think it's an important and very emotional conversation around impeachment, but the country still needs to be run. And I was very happy to hear uh, from Richard that, in fact, your perspective is there are things that are happening right now that are that are relevant to our, our country's future other than the impeachment conversation. Where should we begin? Richard, you pitched me on this. What's Give me an example of something that's going on right now that's actually important and functioning. Well, this show, of course. God um, bless you for saying that, Richard. All right, we now have 22 minutes of silence to fill. (laughs) The reason I uh, invited these two, uh, suggested these two guests is they know better than anyone what's happening in Washington. Okay, so give me uh, what's happened in Washington. Let's start with taxes. That seems to be something that a lot of people care about. I've seen a lot of proposals. Has there been any action? What's going on? Well, everybody's paying a little bit less. Uh, The coffers are um, filling rapidly than ever, but... um, Coffers can't keep up with our desire to spend, unfortunately. Uh, and eventually, you know, the truth is going to have to hit, hit this town very hard. But right now, we just continue to uh, look the other way and pretend it's not happening. You mean from the standpoint of just the realities, we collect, what, 17% of GNP in taxes and spend 23 or so on government? It's just, it's not sustainable. <laughs> yes. It's now, now the right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the perspective is it's not sustainable, but there's there's conflict about how to address that. All right? You can cut expenses, which Congress seems to be unable to do so far, yeah. or, or you can raise taxes, Manny, right? I mean, that's certain. I, I see here and hear that a lot from Democratic advisors. The truth is that the issue of taxes hardly, not many subjects, change the bottom line of a company than taxes. So it's so important. The Trump GOP tax bill did a lot to lower corporate taxes and reform the way offshore taxes were being treated by by the tax code. But it was done so quickly that there's a ton of technical corrections and and issues that they got to fix. So there's bipartisan agreement that there needs to be a tax corrections bill. So folks are anticipating and working on that. The politics are that are similar to Obamacare in the, Medic- uh, the Medicaid field and the healthcare field where it got passed by only Democrats. So there's a lot of resentment back and forth on such a big tax reform, the first one to be done since the 80s. And now they, have, they, they, know they need to rework the package again, but the politics are so tricky. So folks are looking to tax extenders and other things and looking at the end of the year type of big bill to put certain tax provisions that hurt or help bottom line, depending on where you sit. 
It's interesting to me that you look at something complex like the tax bill. You know, just opportunity zones, just a very narrow example, which I've, I've looked at, you know, the idea of driving money into specific parts of the country. People who want to invest for risk, you know, like venture investing, they can't figure out whether or not the rules will allow them to do it, right? And that would be something that would be good to clarify. Are there areas where there is a bipartisan acknowledgement that there need to be tentacle changes made in how the countries function that can transcend the polarization. Do you see that happening? You know, I think it actually has to start with an education campaign. People have to understand uh, a lot more about how much wealth there is out there, what you can do to tax it, what the tax effect means. I mean, Bill Gates is now, what, the richest man in the world. He could afford to build 20 Wilson Bridges. So, well, yeah, he's got a lot of money, but we could take all of his money and not make a dent in the highway trust fund. It's easy to throw out solutions about, you know, we're going to just take all of Bill Gates' wealth. Even that doesn't get us anywhere near where we need to be. Barry, didn't aren't in some we talk about education campaign? Aren't we? Haven't we in fact gone backwards? You know, George Will would argue that we never created a deficit. We never borrowed from the future unless it was for the future. It was for highways. It was for the military. But now we do it as a as an accounting gimmick to help us get reelected, and as Jonathan says, not have to worry about paying the piper now. Absolutely, I think I think debt is a good thing if you're building it, if you're using debt to uh, build a building at a campus uh, or building a bridge is fine with debt, but borrowing money to make transfer payments uh, is is absurd. I think that that's really the fundamental question that I I see is I, I'm a former financial service professional and um, was a hedge fund trader for a while. I'm an economist and I'm a Democrat. And and yet I know that at some point the books have to balance. Otherwise, we become Greece. (laughs) And and, and I'm sympathetic to that. But I find when I try to have conversation about that on either side of the aisle right now, it's very hard to have a rational conversation. Well, one of the things that um, the lawmakers that passed the tax bill were counting on was for uh, as you reduce the corporate rate, you have these companies reinvesting in other things, using that money to grow the economy. I guess the, uh, to Barry's point, if you, you, you issue debt to make the economy grow and your GDP is up, jobs are down, then economics would, uh, the economics would say that that's a, good, that's a good deal because you're growing the economy. We've seen that in other places that tried to uh, cut themselves to, uh, out of an economic crisis. It doesn't work very well. Greece comes to mind and others. Austerity so, doesn't create growth. Correct. That's absolutely correct. true. So I think that's what people are counting on. And the New York Times had a, had a piece on some of the corporations, which I didn't necessarily think it was all that fair. But the, the point was that the corporations weren't doing what they – said they would do in terms of creating jobs and so on and so forth. FedEx and, particularly. Well, right. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, I, uh, Fred Smith is, I th- for, in my view, one of the best CEOs out there. And I think they've done a pretty good job of using that money and recapitalizing some of their pension spend. They have done. You know, Mr. Smith had a few priorities. Certainly uh, lowering corporate rates was one of them. Uh, he gave a couple of speeches uh, in D.C. to that effect. So I thought he got a little kind of a, a bum deal there that I know he took personally because he invited uh, the editor of the New York Times to uh, debate policy. But anyway, point being, tax committees have usually traditionally been less political uh, or partisan than other committees. And the regular order uh, of things works. And I could see something coming together, uh, whether it's extenders or, or another package coming together at the end of the year that tries to address that 
type of growth or, you know, solar taxes, renewable taxes, some other trade between two groups uh, that come together and get, get some sort of provision to try to do stimulus. You know, capital is piling up in the country at, at record levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Apple is sitting on tons of cash. Well, arguably that the stock market is being driven by all this liquidity. It's got no place to go. Right. So I think the one thing that the government could do that it's not currently doing is, is one, investors want certainty, right? They want to lower the risk as much as possible. So if some kind of long-term certainty is, 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 is vitally important. But we also need to use the levers in these tax committees to incentivize companies like Apple. I mean, the president was down in Austin yesterday where they're going to make the, the new Apple MacBook Pro X15, whatever right. it is, in Texas. And that, that's very exciting. There's a cell phone that's being manufactured now in Texas. I think we could be on the cusp of this manufacturing renaissance. The capital is here. Uh, we just need the right government incentives, perhaps, uh, or at least the government encouragement and cheerleading to start bringing these new factories into America who, granted, I mean, the labor is going to be much, much less. But even if a factory creates 50 instead of 500, those are 50 new important jobs in large portions of America. So, Barry, you know, a couple thoughts on that. One is I hope that you're right regarding the manufacturing renaissance. And you're certainly right in terms of labor costs. But one area that I don't think we've explored as much is that we have in America the ability to be more efficient from a manufacturing point of view that can more than make up for the delta in labor costs. But the other issue is in terms of the president's visit to the Apple factory. It's a six-year-old factory that predates him by his administration by three years. So here's the thing, uh, which I want to talk about when we come back after this break. We're having – I'm willing to bet that if the four of us sat down with a piece of paper, we could create a tax program and an investment program that would come pretty close to balancing the budget in a couple hours, (laughs) rationally. We're going to remake the movie Dave right here. I'm serious. (laughs) And you and you and I know rational people could sit down and work these problems out. What is it about the current political environment that prevents that from happening? That's what I want to talk about. This what's working in Washington. We'll be right back. Coming up after the break, we're also at this tectonic shift in uh, electoral realignment. If you look at a pick on seniors as a demographic group, George Bush lost seniors both times. John McCain lost seniors. Mitt Romney lost seniors. Donald Trump comes along and wins seniors by nine points. Well, why? to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace.
Back in this What's Working in Washington next from Jonathan Aberman here with Richard Levick, founder of Levick, and Barry Bennett, founder of Avenue Strategies, and Manny Ortiz, founder of Vantage Night. You know, as I said before the break, I do believe that a lot of, and we're just going to, I think, focus on taxation for the, uh, for the rest of the show, a lot of the solutions are out there uh, from a policy perspective. But I got to tell you, I'm really concerned about whether or not we can resolve these things and balance our books. Is What's driving that? What's driving us apart? Richard, I know you've got a lot of historical context. You travel around the world. Is is this an American phenomenon, an national phenomenon? What do you think? It, and there's clearly a global phenomenon. And I, you know, I'm not sure what part is driving what. Is it the politics or is it the uh, disruption led by technology? I, I sort of lean towards the technological disruption. And I don't think that the disruption is here per se. Clearly, it's here for newspapers. It's here for radio. It's here for other media. And it's here for many of our jobs. But we all know, and this is where the fear factor comes in, we're at the very beginning of the inverted hockey stick. And, and, and I think that, you know, uh, recently I was uh, guest lecturing at a, a graduate uh, business school and they asked the question of disruption. They asked the question of enc- income inequality and clearly there was fear. We're afraid we are not going to do as well no matter how many more degrees, skills uh, that we have and our parents did. And I think it's that fear that's driving. It's the fear that the future equals less. And because of that, Scarcity mentality means we're all taking what's ours now and we're not leaving any of the seeds in the ground to be harvested later. You know, it's funny you talk scarcity mentality because I I find when I talk with my peers that are well off, there is in a lot of cases almost a hysterical fear that the people are going to tax them like crazy and lose everything. And when I talk with friends that are progressive or socialist in politics, they're absolutely convinced that that the rich people need to be taxed like crazy and uh, uh, and we need to do redistribution. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't think either extreme position actually will get us to the right outcome. When you go off and talk with people from the perspective of advising people on how to manage Washington or manage pe- working with people who are politically engaged, how do you counsel them to or can you counsel to move off these extreme positions? Well, I'll, let me take a, a stab at that. What I hear all the time from concerned CEOs is the sound bites and the anger, the notion of uh, this income inequality, the middle class, we're losing the middle class, the, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, that policy gets lost in, in this um, legislating or policy making uh, and making a good policy work for all Americans. And so we get back to the to, to basics. And my counsel to them is to lead with substance, uh, lead with data. And I think being an, a good advocate has changed through the years where in the old days, it could have been sitting down and having a good relationship with someone through knowing a person for a long time. Now it's more about narratives and data and um, projections and numbers. So, so you know, you look at uh, the two areas that we've been discussing, mainly taxes, and I, I would put in trade also. We have an incredibly troublesome political environment around both, yet we're likely heading to, at the end of the year, if a budget deal can get done and appropriations get done, we'll have the renamed... Uh, NAFTA package uh, done by the House, and we'll likely have a a tax package that aims to revigorate the economy. So notwithstanding the toxicity out there, Congress is working back to the theme of the... So notwithstanding the rhetoric that's external, there there are things happening. Uh, Barry, what do you you see when you talk with uh, folks on the Republican side of things? I mean, are you able to... Are they moderating? Do you think they'll ever moderate uh, and be more... 
uh, interested in compromising? You know, I, I mean, when I travel the country or internationally, the frequently most asked question I get is, um, you know, what the heck's going on? Right. Uh, and um, I think we're at this point where convergence is uh, not too strong a word, where social media has now made everybody, everybody who has an opinion is feeling free to amplify it to the point where some mediums are completely worthless. But we're also at this tectonic shift in uh, electoral realignment. If you look at, I'll pick on seniors uh, as a demographic group, George Bush lost seniors both times, John McCain lost seniors, Mitt Romney lost seniors. Donald Trump comes along and wins seniors by nine points. Well, why? It's not because he has some kind of secret sauce, right? It's who constitutes seniors has changed. The new dealers are, they're dead. I would prefer to say they're no longer participating in the democratic process. Unless you're in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The voter, even there, the voter turnout is lower. Right. Uh, but, um, but they've been replaced by their sons or daughters. And they have a very different affinity for government. I mean, my grandparents, my grandfather served in World War II, the GI Bill, all those programs, they helped him. He thought government helped him. He was a lifelong Democrat. My mother, my 80-year-old mother, who's now a senior, doesn't the government's ever done anything to help her. Her generation is the first that didn't serve 30 years at a company and get a defined guaranteed pension benefit. And so they have a much, 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 much lower affinity towards government. So that whole thing has changed. We're turning the, what we thought we understood about the silos of Democrat voters and Republican voters is kind of being overturned. And it's all got to sort out uh, before we can really figure out how it is we come to some kind of solution. I think that's right. I also think this overturning phenomenon you describe, you know, it, it plays out, for example, in England with Brexit. I mean, Brexit does not cut across either Labour or Conservative Party lines at all, at, at all. And or what's going on in Italy with Italian politics. We could go on and on. We're, it seems to me that – and here's my theory. It seems to me that we're at a moment in time where massive changes – are causing people to really, really be angry and look for simple solutions that will, will work. And ultimately, because the country and most countries are 50-50 split roughly, nothing's really going to change. And my theory is that sometime soon, maybe it'll take another electoral cycle or so, people are just going to get tired. They're just going to get exhausted. And I think that's going to be the most interesting and dangerous moment for our country because at that point people will either opt out completely or they actually will get more involved politically and, and force their politicians to be more consensus driven. And first we're going to see record turnout. That's what we're seeing in the off-year elections. That's mm. what we saw in Virginia. We're seeing record turnout. And I, th and I think that will happen first before there is this uh, giving up. But John, uh, Jonathan, you're right that, you know, what happens next? Is it the Iron Age, which is the bottom of the cycle? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's a large portion of America, maybe as much as 30 percent of people live in a state where Democrats control everything in that state. And then there's another 20 percent of America who lives in a state that the Republicans control everything in that state. So when we look and we say America is a 50-50, well, it is. But like Ohio, where I grew up, I always had a million more registered Democrats than Republicans as I grew up in the political business. Today, it has 750,000 more Republicans than Democrats. To assume that the average Ohio voter and the average California voter have anything in common, that's kind of a big assumption. So what are, and what are, where does that take us, Barry? I mean, you know, we're, we're, it's pulling apart of the seams of the fabric of America. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, during the campaign trail, I spent a lot of time on cable news, unfortunately, and uh, – hmm. 
I mean, as opposed to being here on this oh, yeah. radio program. Like, well, this is, you know, no one's screaming at me or called me a racist, so I feel pretty good. I do um, what I can. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, in the green rooms, I would sit with my Democrat strategist. And I'm like, how, does, how do we get out of this anger period, right? And the consensus always was that in good economic times, that people care less about politics and it kind of starts to subside. But what we've seen are some, frankly, very good economic times and the anger has done nothing but exacerbate. I just saw a poll where 75% of the people say that their friends and neighbors are more angry today than they were four years ago, which is a little scary, more than a little scary. Well, I, I don't want to end the show with that as a last soundbite because I agree with you. It, it is scary. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you just quickly, Richard, what's your biggest reason for optimism about how this is going to turn out? You know, I keep getting asked that question, and I don't have I don't have an answer other than to look historically and see that we keep getting up each morning and we keep uh, marching forward. I do think a great reason for optimism is the two other people in the studio with us because they're, they're among the, the deepest insiders in Washington, among the kindest people, and we've worked together on multiple projects, and I think that kind of wisdom carries us forward. Andy, what do you think? I, I have an unbelievably strong belief that the American public are wise, and in this new age of information, uh, all the information out there is available, that the, uh, the country will be able to choose wise leaders that will bring Uh, solutions to them. We as a country have to figure out income inequality and the dying middle class. And once that's done, I think uh, the institutions will be... We'll be just fine. We'll we'll be better. Our work will be done. Barry, what about you? Last word? You know, I'm not terribly optimistic to tell you the truth. I think this is probably the the new normal. We're going to have to get used to it for a while, uh, maybe a decade uh, or two. I mean, as politicians are um, not very popular right now. I mean, I love the the stat that you know Donald Trump's approval rating is what 43-44%, which is historically awful, but it also makes him the most popular politician in America today. <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, I'll tell you, you know I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because 10 and 20 years it seems like a long time, but in the history of society and civilization it's but an eye blink. And the Roman Empire lasted for a thousand years. Governments and countries will subside and they'll continue if the culture is strong. And the United States, as far as I'm concerned, this was a great experiment 250 years ago, and it will be a great experiment for years to come. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for taking the time today. Join me What's Working Washington Extra. Richard Levick, thanks for being here. Thank you. Barry Bennett, thanks for coming. Thank you. And Manny Ortiz, it was great to have you as well. Thank you. Wonderful conversation, guys. We may not have solved every problem, but we demonstrated that things can work in Washington. So thanks for joining us today. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Sadly, but not surprisingly, over the last 60 days, I've actually opened up over five new files to assist co-founders navigate through a disagreement or divorce. As the new year approaches, maybe it's the time of the season, maybe it's just part of a cycle, but as in our personal lives, not all business marriages are meant to last a lifetime. But also, in our personal lives, business breakups can be just as messy emotional, expensive, and even traumatic. If you're not getting along well with your business partners, ask the following questions. First, how severe is the problem? Is this a mild disagreement or truly irreconcilable difference? What's the root of the problem? Is it a strategic disagreement or actual wrongdoing? Third, is the problem or symptom short-term, medium-term, or long-term? Fourth, How aware of your employees 
or ecosystem of the problem among the parties. It's kind of like when the kids know instinctively that their parents are not getting along. And finally, how are these disagreements directly or indirectly affecting or diluting enterprise value and the performance of your company? Let's take a look at some solutions. First, would some form of counseling help the business marriage in lieu of a divorce? There's consultants, business mediators, arbitration, all kinds of venues and forums where business owners can go together and talk to an objective voice. Do you have a board of advisors or a board of directors that might help you navigate through these issues? Second, can leadership or governance or decision-making be changed or responsibilities be retooled in a way to ease the pain? This is particularly useful if the source of the problem is some type of strategic misalignment as opposed to actual wrongdoing. Third, can the company be restructured in some way to create a more autonomy or empower partners to pursue their strategic direction without disagreement? As in our personal lives, these disputes among co-founders will not just go away if they're ignored or swept under the rug. Be proactive, transparent, and purposeful in your attempt to reduce these problems sooner than later. Many of us spend 10, 12, 14 hours a day at our companies every day. We owe it to ourselves to create an environment which is cooperative, functional, and collaborative. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert, Andrew Sherman. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. believe there's such a need for authentic information that's positive and useful. You know, there are many, many people here in the D.C. region who get up every day and just get after creating new things and are committed to making our community better. My producer, Tracy Madigan, and I speak with people every day that tell us amazing stories of that they want to share about the progress they're making, the things that they care about, and why they're proud to be part of the greater Washington community. You're going to meet many of them on this show. That's what working in Washington really means to us. Now more than ever, I feel that a positive voice is needed in our society, our communities. We need to make sure that we reach each other and that we work together. And we'll do our best to make sure that we're genuine and every show provides you with useful insights. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University's School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sarefloor Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade, provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.